please join us in giving special thanks to our family of patrons. Storyfolk Paul Jackson, Christy Carson, Sean Powell, Shawnee Basket, and Selena Vokenhauer. Thanks to their support, the stories keep flowing. You're listening to Lore and Legend, tales from our mythic past. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Rick Scott, bringing you legendary tales inspired by the rich traditions of world folklore and mythology. Landscape, tradition, mentorship. These are the themes of our interview today with Amy Douglas, a practicing storyteller here in Great Britain. Based in Shropshire, where she grew up, Amy first discovered storytelling at the age of 14 and became a devotee of the art broadening her knowledge, experience and skills as a storyteller, and launching a career promoting and celebrating the art form. In 1993, Amy was awarded the first West Midlands Art Storytelling Apprenticeship, and spent a year studying with professional storytellers throughout Britain and further afield, including Helen East, Hugh Lupton, Liz Weir, Jim May and Duncan Williamson. She was a founding member of both the Tales at the Edge Storytelling Club, and the storytelling festival, Festival at the Edge, and served for two years as a director for the Society of Storytelling, organising their annual gatherings for 1999 and 2000. And Amy has her own podcast, Taking the Tradition On, in which she talks to storytellers from across the storytelling scene about storytelling life and what it means to be a bearer of tradition in our world today. You can find links to Amy's website and to Taking the Tradition On in the show notes for this episode. But before we start the interview, Amy shares with us a series of tales from the River Severn, the longest river in Great Britain, which flows from the Cambrian mountains of Wales through the counties of Shropshire, Worcestershire and Gloucestershire. And of course, they have their own rich folklore and history. Lord Plinlimon stood and looked out at the land as far as the eye could see and all of it was under his protection. All of it, his land, all of it, he was its king. But he was old now. And as the autumn drew on with the mist and the rain and the chills, he could feel that cold in his bones. And so he called his three daughters to him, Seven, Wai and Thrydol. And he said, my girls, you're not children anymore. You are young women. And it's time. It's time for you to take your place in the world. It's time for you to help me with my responsibility. It's time for you to take your share. And so tomorrow I will give you from sunrise until sunset. And all of the land that you cover in that day, in that time, will belong to you forever afterwards and you will be queen to rule over it. But you must reach the sea by the time the sun sets. You must touch salt water or you will have nothing. Well, the three women 
already they were looking at each other. Already they were starting to, to plan their routes, what land they would claim. And the three of them went off in different directions. And the eldest, Seven, serious and thoughtful always, she had her plan. And she went to bed early that night. And she woke when the stars were still in the sky. And she sat and she looked at the horizon. She looked to the east and she watched as it lightened until at last, as the sun crested up into the sky, then she was up and off, running like a hare. And behind her, she left a swallow to keep watch on her sisters to come and tell her when they rose. And though the quickest way to the sea was to the west, well, Seven had her back to the west. Instead, she ran towards the rising sun, the long, easy lope that she hoped she could keep up all day. On and on and on she ran while her sisters behind her slept. Why, smiling and serene, well, she went to bed that night with a smile on her face and she slept at her usual time. She woke at her usual time and she stretched, remembering what the day would bring. And she knew exactly which route she wanted to take. She was going to go down all of her favourite valleys and the places where the meadows stretched full of wildflowers. And she set off towards the south. And as she left, that swallow flew up into the air and it flew after seven to land on her shoulder and to tell her that Y was awake, that Y was heading south. And seven, she looked at the sun and she realised it was time to start looping round, and so she turned, heading slowly southwards. Behind her, Rydal slept on. Rydal had planned, like her older sister Seven, to go to bed early, to wake up early, and she had so many things going round her head of what route she would take, what land she would claim, and she tossed and turned her head full of all the plans and the dreams. She couldn't sleep. She tossed and turned and tossed and turned until at last when she finally slipped into slumber while Seven was already waking. And so Rydal slept. And Seven left. And Y left. And it wasn't until the sun was full on her face that at last the heat of it woke her. And she saw it right up ahead, right above her at midday. And she realised half the day was gone. And she leapt to her feet, all of her plans lost, and all she could do was hope that she would get to the sea in time. And she had to take the most direct route, heading straight west and jumping and sliding and down on her bottom, skidding on the shale and the stone, making her way from boulder to boulder, down the cliffs and the mountains, west towards the sea. And Plinlimon stood and he watched his three daughters as they went on their separate journeys. And now the sun was sinking in the sky. And Seven and Y, they looked up and they, they saw each other. And for that last little bit of the journey, they came together and they held hands and they made their way towards the sea. And Thrydol, further north, she could see the sunlight sparkling on the waves and she carried on her headlong pelt towards the sea and all three of them raced across the shore. Just as the sun was melting into the sea, all three of them splashed into salt water. And Plinlimon, watching, smiled. And he stretched 
and he settled down in the form of a mountain. And his three daughters, he turned to three rivers. And they still flow the same way that they did long ago on that summer's day. Every day he nurtures and nourishes them as they travel on their journey to the sea, queen of the land that they flow over. Seven, Wai and Thrydol. And Seven is the river that comes through my county. Seven takes a huge curve through Shropshire splitting the county in two and she would have been the old border between England and Wales it's shifted a little bit now so I live in that strange liminal land between Severn and the now border of Wales in South Shropshire where we have quite a lot that's still to do with England and quite a lot that's still to do with Wales and on my side of the, the River Severn the land starts to get a bit wilder and a bit bumpier and um, and we have really distinctive hills all along, kind of dotted along the border. Um, and each of them has their own silhouette on the horizon and their own character. Sort of before you get into Wales and then it's just endless mountains. They all kind of, you know, kind of roll into one. The other side of the River Severn is much more kind of classically English. It's the, you know, the patchwork prettiness of all the domesticated fields. And the River Severn herself it's a really beautiful river, but also dangerous. Um, and there's lots of stories told about the River Severn. And it's it's true, sadly, even to this day, that she takes a soul each year as a tithe. And the devil, he kind of, he goes up and down the River Severn on a coracle, fishing for souls. And you should never go fishing on a Sunday, otherwise the, the devil will get you. There was one young man who lived quite close to the River Severn. And one Sunday, you know, in that teenage way, he went, I'm not going to church, it's boring. And his mother said, you are going to church. He said, no, I'm not I'm going fishing. If you do, you will go down below, she said. And she put on a best hat and off to church she went. He got his fishing rod. He got his coracle. He went along the path where all the parishioners were going just to make sure that everybody going to church would see him. And they all looked at him in horror and his fishing rod said, oh, you're not going fishing on a Sunday. I am, he said. You will go down below. Well, all the other parishioners, they went into the church. He put his coracle on the river within sight of the church, just to make his point, got into the boat, started fishing. The bells of the church stopped ringing and the church door shut and it was quiet. And there was a smell of sulphur in the air and there was somebody sitting at the other end of the boat and the devil smiled at him and said, now it's time for you to go down below. It was a crack of thunder, flash of lightning, and when the parishioners came out of the church, there was nothing to be seen of the boy or the coracle, but a few charred bits of wood floating on the river. Well, the story's like that all the way down the river. I think every church on the river has claimed that one. So it must have been true, at least one of them. Now they say you should never murder anybody in the River Severn. <laughs> to be fair, they do say you should never murder anybody at all. <laughs> but if you're going to murder somebody, don't murder them in the river. Because if you do, at some point in your life, you'll be dragged back to the spot in the river 
um, to hear your victim's dying screams once again. And if you are um, stupid enough as a murderer to try and cross the river in a boat at that point, then the boat will stop halfway across the river and hands will come out, arms reaching up into the boat to pull you down into the depths and snare you with the river weed. And those stories continue down, down, down by the river. But I think one of my favourite stories about the River Severn is near Bridge North, a place called Astley Abbots. And there was a young man who lived on the banks of the River Severn. He may have called it Hathren, which is its Welsh name. I think Sabrina wasn't used so much, the old Latin name for her. I think he probably called her Seven. But he lived, his hut was just high enough on the banks to escape the worst of her moods and her seasons and her floods, but close enough so that every night he could see, when he, as he went to sleep, he would hear the song of her as she flowed past, the gentle rhythm and gurgle and flow, and that would be his lullaby. And Coughlin was a lonely man. He was a shy man. His parents were long gone. And although he took his fish, he made his living as a fisherman, taking his living from the river, he would take his fish into the town and he could muster up enough words to sell his fish and to barter for what he needed. He'd try to go to some of the social events and the dances, but whenever he tried to speak to any of the young women, while well, he would just flush from the neck to the roots of his hair, he would tread on their toes and they would giggle and they would run away laughing to their friends and his stomach would roil and it was just too much of a torment to even try anymore. So he lived on his own. And in the daytime, while well, the day was full of enough work and chores to keep him busy. But in the evenings... When he lay down, in that moment before sleep came, that's when he would feel lonely and he'd feel the empty space next to him and the empty space of the hut. And he would listen to the song of the river. Well, it was about this time of year, maybe a little bit early in October time when the salmon were running. And it was a beautiful day a golden day like you get in the end of autumn when the sun is warm but the sun is low in the sky and it has that special golden light and though the day is warm there's a chill in the shadows and you know that there's not going to be many golden days left but it was golden this day and it was a day for him to get into his coracle and to paddle upstream up to the, to the bends, to the meanders, because he knew that was the perfect place to find the salmon, because they rest. Where the, when the river bends, the flow is fast on the outside edge, but on the inner edge, the water barely moves at all, and it creates a, a still pool where the salmon can rest for a moment and gather their energy before they carry on swimming upstream. And he knew those pools with the, the willows bending over the water, creating shade to cool the fish. And he found a most promising spot, perfect spot. And he nudged the coracle out of the current of the river. So it only needed the, the gentlest of touches to keep it from moving in the current. And he took his fishing line with three hooks on it and he cast it out over the water and he pulled it in. And all that afternoon he cast and pulled back the line and cast 
pull back the line. And though he was sure that the salmon were in that pool, they weren't taking the bait. And they weren't taking his line. And cast after cast, there was nothing. And the sun was starting to sink in the sky. And so he decided that he would throw out the line one last time. This time, the last time, at last, there was a tug on the line and a strong tug. It was obviously a, a big fish that was on that line and he pulled and teased and slowly managed to pull that fish closer and closer to the boat with one last flick. The fish was up and onto his lap. And it lay still there after it flapped a little while and then lay still looking up at him. And he gently took the hook out from the cheek of the salmon and he traced that dark meridian line. And she lay there still and trusting, the dark silver scales on her back and that bright moonlight belly and that one eye looking up at him, not cold, not cold at all, as you think of fish, but intelligent. And she seemed to be looking at him with such a gaze that he couldn't do it. He couldn't take that thing of beauty and smack her head against the side of the boat. He couldn't kill her. And so in one great motion, he heaved himself up, heaved the fish over the side, back into the water, pushed the coracle back into the current and let it start to take him downstream, all the while cursing himself for being such a fool, of wasting the entire afternoon trying to catch a salmon. He finally did catch a salmon, throwing it back in the water. What was he thinking? He'd obviously been living alone for far too long. And while he was berating himself, he didn't see that sliver of silver that turned followed him back downstream. Well, the light was fading fast and it was dark by the time Coughlin got back to his own little bit of the bank of the river, even though he was going faster this direction with the current carrying him. And he nudged the coracle towards the edge of the river, splashed out into the shallows, picked it up, carried it up to his hut. And he put the upturned coracle by the side of his hut. He pulled himself in, took off his wet trousers, didn't bother trying to do anything else that night, but just crawled into his cot, pulled up the covers and let sleep take him. But he woke in darkness. It was still the middle of the night. But there was something unusual, something that had caught his sleeping mind. And he could hear the river, but there was something else. There was The river always sounded like singing, but now there was a song, a human voice entwined with the water. And he got up, not sure if he was still dreaming or not, and he made his way outside and the moon was bright, lighting up the world, but not in a daylight way lighting it up like a dream, all in black and white and silver. And he walked through the dark grass towards the river and the river, it was like silver. All of the river was white. It was a negative of the daytime world with the grass dark and the river, just a river of light. And in that light, there was something moving. 
white skin in silver water. And he realised there was a, a woman swimming and singing and she was naked. And all her hair spreading around her like river weed dancing in the current. She turned and she saw him standing there and she smiled and she stood upright in the water, the water streaming from her hair and her skin. And she waded out of the water up onto the bank and she smiled and she held out her hands to Cothlin and Cothlin took them. And there was no words needed, no shyness or awkwardness. The two of them, they lay down on the bank together. And when Cothlin woke, his hair tousled, his mind still tangled in dream. He was back in his hut, back in his cot. But there was somebody there with him. She was there. And daylight was coming in through the doorway now. And he saw her long hair following the curve of her shoulder and her stomach and her hip. And she turned, her eyes heavy with sleep and... It was only then that he saw the scar in her cheek, the barb caught. Well, she smiled, and her name was Sabrina. And she stayed there in the hut with Cothlin. And the two of them, they filled that hut with life and love and laughter. And when those things come together, well, quite soon they filled it with children as well. And there was talk. There always is talk. But as the weeks and the months and the years passed, well, the talk lessened. And it was just Cothlin and Sabrina and their brood who lived down by the river. And the years went by and Cothlin was happy. And so was Sabrina. But things were changing in the outside world and there was a new king, King Merriwold. And King Merriwold... King Merriwold, well, he was doing the thing that royals still do today. He was kind of doing the grand tour. He was inspecting all of his lands and all of his people. And so he was taking day trips with his family and with his children to be seen as their new ruler. And so on a beautiful sunny day, on the other side of the river, coming up to the Severn and Finding a perfect picnic place came Merriwold and his servants. They started to lay out the picnic blankets. They started to put the food down. And while they waited, while the queen, she went and she was watching the river. And she was watching the light dancing on the current and the ripples. And she was playing with the ring on her finger. And as she stood there, lost in thought, there was a sudden beating of wings and a skidding on the water and the sound of it and the suddenness of the, the swans landing on the river. Well, it made her trip and stumble and the, the ring came off her finger, slipped through her fingers, ran, rolled through the grass over the edge of the bank and into the water. Oh, she cried out. And the, the king, he heard and he came rushing home, said, what is it, my dear? And she said, my ring. I've chopped my ring. It's gone into the river. Well, of course, he clapped his hands, called for his servants. So the queen has dropped her ring in the river. Go and get it. Well, the servants leapt into the river, started to look for the ring. But, well, as soon as they jumped into the river, 
Well, of course, all the mud and the sediment from the bottom of the water just got kicked up and all I did was make it muddy instead of clear. And they were sifting the sand and the um, silt through their fingers, but they couldn't find the ring. A couple of more servants were sent off on horses to go and get help. And a little while later, a couple of coracles started to come down the river and there were people with nets fishing for the ring. And well, it it had already worked, the fact of the sort of the royal family coming out to have their picnic. People had already started to arrive to look at the royal family and see their new king and queen. And so it wasn't long before other people were coming as well. And they were pretty sure there'd be a reward for anybody who found the ring. So every, it, was, it was a party, a holiday. Everybody was jumping into the river. Every boat from miles around was on the water. There was fishing nets and rods and lines. Nobody was finding the ring. And the eldest princess, the king's eldest daughter, was called Milberger. And she was watching all of these people out on the waters. And she saw a woman on the other side of the river. And she saw her gently, slowly slip into the river. And Milberger's eyes widened. Because in the water, no longer a woman, but a fish. And she stared at the place where the woman had been. And she tried to follow that fish in the water, but... There's no use, she'd lost it. But it wasn't long before that woman came out on her side of the bank, the water streaming from her, and she came quietly over to the queen. She, she took the queen's hand, she put the ring inside it, she folded the queen's fingers around the ring, and she went to slip away, but the queen caught her wrist and pulled her back, and she called over the king, and she showed the king the ring. And the king smiled at the woman, and he said, Oh, thank you. Now, what shall I give you as a reward? <laughs> and the woman would have taken nothing. But the king looked out and said, is, is that your hut over there? And she nodded. And he said, well, if you will take nothing from me, then I will take nothing from you. As long as you and your family stay on that land, then you will pay no taxes to the crown. We will take nothing from you. And they say that that's still true. There's still a little bit of land. It's not the same hut that's on it, but a little piece of land by Astley Abbott, where Coslin and Sabrina's descendants still own. And I think they may have to pay some taxes. I think they've twiddled the rules about a little bit. So things like poll tax and council tax don't actually go to the crown. But there's no money that ever goes to the crown from that bit of land. And there's still a certain look to some of the people in that area of Shropshire. Strawberry blonde hair that shimmers like scales and a little birthmark on the cheek that sometimes you see and you can know that's one of Sabrina's descendants. But as for Sabrina and Coughlin, whether their descendants are still around or not, still their story remains and is told to this day. And as for Milberger, well... That leads on to a whole other set of stories, but we probably don't have time for those today. At the heart of Amy's career as a storyteller is the relationship between story, community and the land. Her work delves deep into the folklore of Britain, bringing to life tales of the strange and macabre, 
memories of the magical overworlds and folk stories moulded by the land, weather and passing of generations. Our conversation centred around storytelling as a vehicle for tradition in our contemporary world. I started by asking Amy what her work as a storyteller looks like today and what she's been up to during the lockdown. My name is Amy Douglas and I am a storyteller. Um, So I tell traditional tales and I tell them for whoever will listen, really. Um, I have two young children. So over the past kind of 15 years, I've really focused on telling stories in education mostly and to children because those are the hours that fit. And I've got two willing guinea pigs. (laughs) So it's been really exciting kind of um, working with them, seeing how they develop and and being able to play with that with other children as well and kind of just just see how how children develop and their minds develop and and how important play and words and language and riddles are. So I've been working a lot in that area. Um, they're a little bit older now and so I'm starting to do more adult storytelling again which is how I first got into storytelling. Um, I think when I when I started storytelling, I was quite young, I was 14. And I was maybe one of the first people that came into storytelling um, from an adult point of view and telling stories to adults. I think most of the people at, at that time came from librarian background or a teaching background or children's entertainers and then kind of branched out into adult storytelling. Um, I did it the other way around. And I love telling to adults and that was that's that's kind of how I how I see storytelling and then the kind of the the branching out into children's stuff was was a bit of a revelation to me um so coming back as a different person really as well having been through a mother and kind of being a mother and and looking after children and you know I've changed drastically in the last 15 years so coming back to those stories I'm seeing different sides in them and different things that I want to bring out in those stories and I'm really enjoying um, being able to play with that and being able to go and tell in the evenings and in the weekends um, which I'm still doing so uh, I might not be going out and about and traveling (laughs) and actually going to storytelling clubs in the physical world um, but I can put the children to bed and come over to the shed, uh, which is where I am now. It's my storytelling den. And it's uh, these last kind of few months have opened a portal to the whole world. Um, and I've been telling stories all over the world and listening to storytellers from all over the world. I've been able to kind of put some of my tales out there. So um, kind of current events have really sort of changed your your storytelling world and perspective then well partly um I mean I'm on quite a long journey at the moment anyway um it's it's one of those things it's hard to know where to start (laughs) but I as part of my apprenticeship and part of my learning to tell stories um I met Duncan Williamson who is was a wonderful Scottish traveller storyteller um and I first went to stay with him when I was 18 um, and I, I just kept going back until he finally died in, in 2007. Um, and he took me on as, as his apprentice, really. So I learned a lot of stories from him. I learned a lot about storytelling from him. And he gave me several boxes of reel-to-reel tapes um, that he, mostly recorded by his, his wife. 
Um, <laughs> it was just one of the times I was up there. Amy, do you want these? Because if you don't take them, I'm going to chuck them in the skip. I think was how it went. So I had these tapes um, for years and years. You must have given them to me when I was about uh, 21 and I'm, I'm 45 now. Um, and for a long time, I did absolutely nothing with them because whenever I had a bit of time, I could either try and do something with the tapes or I could go and see Duncan. So there was just no competition at all. Um, and then he died in 2007 and then I couldn't bear to listen to them for a while. Um, and then over the past few years, they've been sitting, looking at me going, if you don't do something with us soon, we're not going to be playable anymore. And so I've been, um, had a few false starts, but eventually I got some money from the Arts Council and crowdfunding um, and to, to try and actually digitise those tapes. But there didn't seem to be much point in just digitising them for them to sit in a different format and not do anything with. Um, so I was lucky enough to get an Arts Council bid to kind of have time to to digitise them, but to listen to them, to revisit the time that I spent with him, to revisit my apprenticeship and to to think about it. And that was a really amazing experience because those tapes were recorded in, um, mostly in the 70s. And so he was about my age. I mean, I met him as a teenager and he was in his 60s and 70s. And now, you know, I'm 45 and he's in his 40s and we're peers. This amazing time travel thing happened, like with listening to the tapes and, and having like, a conversation through these tapes. Um, but part of that Arts Council project was to have those tapes as a focus to become a bit more digital Um because I used to be quite computer savvy and I used to be quite technological and then you have children and kind of <laughs> all available time goes out of the window. So I got stuck in the age of, of mini discs. Um, I used to work for, for the local radio. So I did. I used to do quite a lot of editing and sound work, but I hadn't moved on to, you know, kind of that next stage after mini discs. I hadn't got on to, to being purely digital. So... I was already kind of on that journey of looking into having a go at at podcasting, following your journey um, and doing more with social media and blogging and, and looking at live streaming um, and the live streaming part of the bid. And that thing of kind of, you know, having live performances streamed onto the Internet was the bit that really frightened me most about the whole bid. And then suddenly halfway through my bid, we went into lockdown and I'd been kind of making these very tentative forays online and it was all kind of this big empty space. And then it was a bit like paddling at the edge of the water on my own. And then the entire world just kind of came and splash all around me and started doing this mad, you know, sort of uh, sprint out to sea. <laughs> um, but that meant there was a lot more people around to talk to, um, a lot more people around who were willing to come to events. And it's been amazing actually, because everybody's been learning together and I think everybody has been really generous so we've been able to make mistakes and everybody's kind of in that same boat and so everybody's sort of learned you know not not being too judgmental about that and kind of just laughing it off and we're all getting better together and I love that there's no rules it's it's this new space to kind of pioneer in and we're all trying to figure out the best way to make things work and there there isn't this is the format and everybody does it this way. And that whole kind of experimental feel and just having a go, I absolutely love. It's clear that mentorship has played a hugely important role in Amy's career. And I wanted to explore the importance of mentorship in cultivating and passing on the storytelling tradition today. 
you, you said you met Duncan when you were a teenager. Did you come to the world of storytelling through Duncan or were you aware of it before you met him? Where did you meet the storytelling tradition first yourself? So I always loved stories um, and I loved fantasy books and there would always be a storytelling character. And I loved I loved books of folktales as well. And I would just think, just think where where have they all gone? Why don't we have them anymore? Um, and my parents started taking me to folk festivals in my early teens, about 12, 13. And I think it was probably one of my, probably the first festival I went to that um, Taffy Thomas was there. Um, and there's just this workshop on the programme, storytelling workshop with Taffy Thomas. And I thought, ooh. So I went along and it wasn't really a workshop at all. It was just Taffy telling stories. Um, but at the end, I went up to her and said, how did you get involved in storytelling? And he just sort of towered over me and went, why do you want to? <laughs> maybe (laughs) and um he introduced me to mike rust um who was going to be setting up a storytelling club that autumn um and so i went to the very first meeting of tales at the edge which was up at wenlock edge um and i had just had my 14th birthday which meant in those days that i was allowed to go (laughs) um because it was still in the in the days you know you had to be 14 to go into into a pub um and I listened to everybody telling stories all the way around. And there was a lot of people for the first one. And I just kept going. And some nights there would just be me and my dad, who was a lovely chauffeur, um, Mike Rust and Richard Walker, who was also involved in setting it up and running it. And I just kept going every month and got to learn more and more and more stories. Um, and I would learn one story <laughs> each month. And I'd just listen to Mike and Richard kind of telling stories backwards and forwards. And people got to hear about it because, I mean, the, the scene was very different then. Um, th- there wasn't a lot of storytelling around. Uh, there was the Crick Crack Club in London, which was really more of a performance uh, venue. Um, they did start a storytelling, more of a storytelling club afterwards, but it was still kind of, it wasn't just like, you know, you sit around a circle and anybody's allowed to tell a story. There was kind of like maybe new voices and things. Um, and there was us, and that was it, really, at that point. Um, so we got quite a lot of coverage because it was unusual. And then people started coming to the club and going, oh, will you come and do our old people's home? Will you come and do our school? Will you come and do a little set at this? And so I got to start telling out really quickly. And it just kind of grew. And so I got to meet most of the other storytellers who were around, and most of them were a lot older than me. I, there weren't many that were under 40 I don't think really and I was 14 at the beginning and and most of them were men and I mean that's really changed now I would say now um there's more much many more women involved in storytelling than than men but at that point it was it was the other way around um so we set up fest at the edge when I was 16 um and I, I got to be the minute secretary I think I was listed which everyone thought was hilarious but I did do all of the taking of the minutes um and Duncan came to, I think, the third festival at the Edge. Um, and that's when I asked him first if I could if I could go and study with him. But I'd also had a huge amount of support, I mean, from Mike and Richard, who ran the club. Um, but also we had a really fantastic arts officer, West Midland arts officer at that time called David Hart. He was really supportive of the festival and really supportive of me. And he set up a thing called the West Midland Arts Storytelling Apprenticeship. Um, which was open to anybody to apply for, 
but I'm not entirely sure how many other people did. And it kind of felt like it was set up for me, really. So I applied for it and I got it. And it was only £1,000, but it was enough to really kind of just give me a start and be able to do a fair amount of stuff. And um, so I took a gap year. And instead of going to, to India and Thailand, like everybody else I knew that was going on a gap year, um, I spent a year as a storytelling apprenticeship. And I you know, worked really hard at the beginning of the year, had sort of worked two or three jobs and kind of was just you know manically cleaning pub working all the rest of it to get enough money together for the rest of it and then I did loads of exciting things that year I went to uh, the um, NSN the National Storytelling Festival in Tennessee in Janesboro um, which was an amazing experience and I I phoned up lots of storytellers and went hello um, can I come and stay with you for a few days and follow you around please um, and all of them said yes, apart from one who was living in a very small flat as a single man in his 40s in London and kind of went, um, if you want to come into any of my events, that's fine. But no, you can't come stay, <laughs> which, which I totally understand. But everybody else I did. I mean, I, I it was amazing. I got to um, follow Hugh Lupton around, um, Daniel Morden, Liz Weir. Um, whenever I wasn't following somebody else around, I came back home and Helen East had a project that year, Breaking the Silence, in Shropshire. So whenever I was at home in Shropshire, then I was working with her and Rick Wilson. Um, the Bulls of Bengal came over that year, which was organised by Vi and and they did a week-long workshop in Birmingham, which was just amazing. Um, and so I got to, to go to America and sort of stay with storytellers over there and talk to them and, and see an entirely different and much, much bigger storytelling scene. And so going to stay with Duncan was just kind of part of that year. But it turned out to be the biggest part, really. I mean, we just clicked. I think he was at a part of his life when he needed somebody to teach. He needed somebody to pass those stories on to. And I was like a sponge and I desperately needed a really good teacher. And so, um, you know, kind of I went up for the first time. I think I stayed about 10 days and was just like, you know, you hardly started <laughs> you think you think you know anything now you're gonna have to come back <laughs> so I did I just kept kept it going back and I would sort of go back as often as I could and stay as long as I could hack it really because I loved him dearly and I would learn lots but he didn't sleep so I mean being with Duncan was incredibly intensive I mean you would just be on the go from like sort of something ridiculous like half six in the morning till three o'clock in the morning and um I would just get to a point of if I don't leave now I'm going to kill him um, and then I'd have to go away and just kind of sleep and try and work on all of the stuff that I'd learned from him. That sounds like an amazing experience. You know, is apprenticeship a big part of the storytelling world? Is it, or is that a very unique experience, do you think? I think it was a very unique experience, and I think I'm incredibly lucky. Um, I don't think it should be unique. And I think um, there are there are apprenticeships and mentoringships happening um I think a lot of them are more formal now but there's also it's an interesting thing I think there's a lot of people who would be happy to mentor other younger storytellers but those younger storytellers a have to kind of put enough work in to show that they're serious about it and that they are um that they are at a point when they are ready to be taught because to be mentored you ha you have to, to have gone quite a long way I think on your own already there's no point when you're right at the beginning because 
you're not going to get as much as you could do from the person who's going to teach you. And then you have to ask. Um, There's a really massive thing that just keeps coming up and coming up again and again for me is the importance of asking. And when you ask for something, um, I mean, you can feel very shy about it and go, I shouldn't do this and kind of am I worthy? And it's really rude and it's really cheeky. But people can't help you if you don't open a door for them. And you have to show willing and you have to take that step and make yourself vulnerable. You have to open yourself to rejection. You have to open that door to let somebody else come in. Nobody is going to start telling you, well, I don't think you should be doing like that. And actually, if you did this, that'd be really helpful. And have you ever thought about this? People won't come up and start critiquing you if you don't ask them to. You know, that would be very rude as well. Um, And so I know that there are those things happening, but it, it does need to be generally between two people. And you it has to be a friendship. It's, it's, it's that that relationship between a pupil and a teacher and a, and a mentor in that way is, is really special. Um, and, and it has to click on both sides. And you both have to put a certain amount into, into that. And there's, there's a lot of onus on the pupil to, to make it worth, worth a mentor's while. If they're going to give you all of that knowledge and all of those stories... Um, and put that time into you they don't want you to just be turning around and going actually it's not for me you know whenever it's um you have to take it seriously it sounds like you there's almost two stages to your to the apprenticeship thing then it's like you almost built your own apprenticeship by going and visiting all those people and uh you know you talked about asking and I I suppose you you asked a lot of people and, and went to different places and things and um and then out of that came this, uh, you know, this particular relationship. Um, do you think that's a good a good model for somebody to follow if they're if they're looking to find a mentor? I think it's a great model if they can manage to do it. Yeah, I mean, I was so lucky, and and I was really lucky as well. You know, I mean, I think storytelling clubs are so important and. I mean, in my original mentorship, I wasn't really aware of getting it and wasn't kind of appreciating it as much at the time, I don't think, as maybe I should have done. But, you know, kind of the, the way that I was brought up in storytelling between Mike Rust and Richard Walker, I mean, they were incredibly influential and really kind of cradled my first steps into into storytelling, really supported me. And kind of we went out quite a lot telling the stories, the three of us, and they were doing definitely doing the main work of carrying while I was having the odd one kind of, you know, popping in and if I wasn't managing to quite carry the audience or anything they'd just pick it up at the end of my story you know and carry on and I learned so much from them um but yeah I think I think finding the right mentor is really hard and, and going around and and learning from lots of people is a really good way and all of those other people that I stayed with I mean I still have so much respect for and I learned I learned so much from lots of the different people that I stayed with and then to have this incredible relationship with Duncan was was an absolute gift I asked Amy how she and other storytellers thought about the role of mentorship in their own careers. So I I am mentoring my um, my partner in crime at um, at Blast. So Suzanne Thomas, who is developing into a really wonderful storyteller, actually. And I was having a very similar conversation with Shona Lee Cumbers, and we were talking about this thing of how how do you mentor people and kind of because we're both sort of getting to that stage in our careers where we're starting to think actually we probably need to start thinking about passing some of our stuff on um but how you how you do that and particularly for her um I mean we're in very different positions because 
I've got a whole kind of issue with the fact that the culture that I've been given by Duncan is not my culture in lots of ways. I'm I'm not a Scottish traveller and that comes with its own big political kettle of stuff. <laughs> and Shona Lee, you know, she's the last in a line of, of Jewish storytellers. So she's the last known Jutsila and she's got this incredible wealth of, of stories that really should be taught from when you are a, a child um, and how she's going to adapt that for the modern world and how to choose her mentees and people that are going to be prepared to put enough time in and who are going to respect and honour the material in a way that she feels is fitting while she's still giving them enough leeway to to tell and enjoy those stories. So we were having this conversation and Suzanne was kind of listening in and there was a gap between, so all of this stuff about having to ask, does that mean if I ask you, you're going to take me on as your mentee? Well, kind of not to now, having said all of that. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so but she's she's great, and it's and it's a wedding in a very different way. I mean, she's not interested in um, well, it's not that she's not interested in Scottish traveller stories, but she doesn't have a direct link in the, in the way that I do. And she's but one of the things that I really did get from Duncan is is about the importance of stories with the land and the way that he would navigate by stories. Um, there's, I suppose, there's a misconception when people hear the word traveller that they think people tra- travellers travel in straight lines which they absolutely don't, and they travel in circles. They get to know a very large bit of land very well, and they know it by the seasons, and they know the best places to stop, and they know where the work is. Um, and they they navigate that land by stories, and kind of you, as you walk that land each time, you're reminded when you see landmarks and go, oh, well, that's where so-and-so happened, and that's where so-and-so met the ghost, and that's where Salt of the Silky was, and you see those trees and that copse there. and that. So as you walk it, the land is retelling you all of those stories and you're retelling them back to the land. And so one of the, I've learned those stories from Duncan, but I I was already had that connection, I think with landscape and story. And so I don't live in Scotland. I live in Shropshire and my work has been very much about, about, about walking the land here and getting to know the Shropshire stories, which is very much the path that Suzanne is on and telling the stories of the places that she knows and the land that she walks and giving that a voice. And so that's been really interesting working with her on that. Are you seeing the interest out there in uh, in apprenticeship and in the sort of the passing on in the tradition? And and if you are, then you know where's that coming from? Is it younger people or older people? Or I think it's both. Um, and it's it's interesting. I don't think it matters when you come to storytelling. Obviously, I came really really early, but I think I'm I'm such a better storyteller now than I I was when I was younger. And part of that is experience, and part of that is is life. Um, one of the things about being a, a storyteller is, is is the empathy that you need and the knowledge of of different emotions and different states of life. And there's, you know, I've just experienced a lot more now. I think there's there's an awful lot of stories that I just think you can't really get your head around when you're twenty. Um, just you just don't have have that capacity within you because you haven't hopefully have experienced so much death you haven't gone through birth or children or uh, a lot of the political wrangles that you get into later on I mean you just one would hope you still got quite a lot of hope and innocence and optimism about you at, at 20 I know that's not not true for everybody um so I think that you can learn quicker when you come to storytelling older because you've done a lot of learning in other other spheres um 
And there are definitely, I mean, you know, ever since I started storytelling, I mean, the storytelling has got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, it's still a very niche art form, but there's a lot more people involved in it now. And there are there are mentoring schemes, but there's a lot of people that offer offer paid workshops. And I suppose that might be, that's a bit of a thing now as well, is that people kind of, if they're running workshops, they're going to expect you to maybe pay and go on a workshop and learn what you can that way before you you take that next step of, of a menteeship. I think there's, you know, you kind of need to go through all of that, those things first. Uh, Beyond the Border, I've been doing amazing work, which um, uh, they're an international storytelling festival uh, based at Geneva, um, just on the, on the edge of Wales. Um, and they've really been doing all sorts of work to encourage every, all the storytellers in Wales and help them uh, increase their skills. But they've just launched three uh, menteeships. They've got three mentees at the moment who they have paired up um, with different storytellers within Wales and and given them some choice and some leeway in that so they hope they're going to the right people to learn the right skills from. So there's definitely opportunities there. Um, but it's that thing of it has to come from the person who's learning and it's quite difficult when you're learning to know what you need to learn. <laughs> so I think it's always a bit tricky and that's part of the journey, isn't it? Definitely. And I guess the, the thing about digital technology and it widening access, um, you, you went and visited lots of people and stayed with them, you know, for for a lot of people that might be quite difficult. But I suppose that if we're all Zooming now, there'll be more opportunities for mentors and mentees to connect. Well, absolutely. And a lot of what I did on my on my year was shadowing. You know, I mean, I'd, I'd sort of, um, I'd ask if I could go and stay with people. So I would just go and the work that they were doing anyway. And then I would have the opportunity to talk to them about it and ask them about it afterwards. And quite a lot of them kind of made me do something as, as part of their day as well, so that they could feedback on on me and tell me how I was doing. But there's so much that you can you can watch now. I mean, that's things that you, you have this portal to the world where you can see lots of different storytellers in lots of different situations and see what they're doing, see how they're telling, seeing what works and what doesn't work and what works for them might not work for you <laughs> and trying out other things that you go, Oh, that, that does work. That, that is really good. And, and most storytellers I think are pretty open. And if you've got a genuine interest, write to them, email them and go, look, I've just been watching you and I really like the way you did this. And I've been wondering about this. Can you give me any advice? I think most storytellers are really incredibly generous in giving advice like that. Um, and there's a, you know, that are, I going to say Liz Weir is another person who is, I, I stayed with her on my apprenticeship and she's still mentoring people now and often has people come to her barn in the physical world to mentor them. But she's also doing mentoring online as well. And Sheila Arnold, who I've done quite a lot of work with over lockdown, who's an American storyteller. Um, I know that she's she's giving mentoring sessions online. He would just be an incredible person. If you're looking for a mentor, she would be a wonderful person to start with. Since Amy is a passionate advocate of passing down and developing a tradition of storytelling, history and folklore, I asked how a new storyteller can engage with and foster a sense of tradition, especially if it's something that they struggle to feel a connection with. I I came to storytelling fairly, well, what I would view as late through an academic setting. You know, I... I suppose one of my feelings about myself and I imagine that might maybe comes up a lot in the modern context of storytelling is the actual feeling that actually I'm I'm not very connected to the land or a tradition. Um 
Well, I think every storyteller has their own truth and their own place that they're coming from and their own thing that they want to say. Um, and I think if you haven't got anything to say, then you're not really going to make it as a storyteller. <laughs> and, I mean, I think, and that's one of the big things for me, I think, in the difference of my the quality of my storytelling now and, and 20 years ago is I I think I've, I've now got quite a lot more things that I want to say. Um, and while I won't ever put morals on stories, I think people who listen to me will quite quickly work out where my stance on the world lies <laughs> um so it's you have to tell from where you're at I mean I live in a beautiful part of the country and I like walking and and this is and I'm lucky to live in a place where the land is absolutely layered with story um and and it, it's a patchwork of story. So you kind of start in one place and it leads you on to another story and another story and another story. And for, for me, I mean, that that is how I find my way around around the county. But some of those stories are really, really old stories. But they're but they also and the same with Duncan kind of, you know, they're, they're not all really old traditional stories. I mean, some of them are about, oh, God, and that's when I was there with, you know, my my dad and. I fell in the you know in the, in the reservoir and we um, we drank half a pint of tadpoles each you know kind of this you, know, you end up with the new stories being laid on, layered on there as well um, and and historical things and it's it's no, it's knowing a place in that way as well I mean so the the stories from you know I mean you talk about Simon Hayward I mean the, I heard the podcast that you did with him and he's talking about about Sheffield and he's talking about the paving slabs and the buildings and he's talking about kind of the the peace revolution that happened in Huddersfield and the stories of the conscientious objectors and the stories of the ghost and the story of the path that would have been walking through woodland and now it's got built up around but you can still walk that same path and there's a ghost that still walks that same path just because you're not surrounded by you know fountains and waterfalls and beautiful silver birch trees it doesn't mean that you're not connected to the land there's gravity it's very difficult to not be connected to the land it's there you know kind of it might just there might be like dandelions growing through paving slabs but you're surrounded by people and a community and a land that has witnessed all of that going on and there will be traditional stories and urban myths and legends and important people who've left their mark there, whose stories need to be told. Um, and and it's, you know, it's up to people where they're coming from. So for me, I am deeply rooted in that and I need to be able to see in my stories everything that's going on. So I will I will take you on a path through my landscape, but I need to be able to kind of take you on diversions and I need to know what's out the corner of my eye. So we might be telling a story and I'll be like, we'll just wander over here and I'll tell you about this, but the path of the story's back over there, we'll go back there. So I think it's just hard if you take a story that you've heard from somebody else and you think, oh I really like that story, but it's it's coming from their perspective. It's from a place that I've never been to. It's from a culture that I know nothing about. You can retell that story. It can mean something to you. But you've got tunnel vision in it. It's like you're telling it with blinkers on because you don't know what is off the path of the story that you've been told because you haven't explored that world around it. And I do think that if you're going to tell a story, you need to earn it. And I think you can probably tell a story from anyone and anywhere. But you have to make it yours. And that doesn't mean that you just have to put it in your own words. It means that you have to make a connection with that story. You have to understand it. You have to make a relationship with it. You need to be able to walk around in the landscape of that story and choose which bit you are going to share with the person that you tell it to. Um, 
And so everybody's going to have different relationships with where they live, with the people around them and with their own history. So I tell grim stories and a lot of those have come from Germany and Russia. I mean, I was born in Germany, but I only lived there for three months. So, you know, don't remember much the three month old baby. But I do feel that's part of my culture, my heritage. They're stories that I grew up listening to. And I feel like I, I've known enough of those stories that I, I know that world. I know the world of those type of stories. And I feel like I can tell them. I would not want to tell Anansi stories and African stories because I, I don't have that connection with them. Um, I don't know enough of them to really be able to inhabit that world. Now, there might be somebody who, you know, has African heritage. They've never been to Africa, but their grandparents told them those stories. They've grown up with them. They've heard enough of those that that feels like their their home and their story home. Um, I mean, that place doesn't exist anymore. You know, if their grandfather's telling them those stories, the place that they've come from will have moved on and will have changed. But there is that story world and that story space that, that has an integral truth and they understand that place they might not want to tell the stories that their grandfather told them they might want to tell the stories of industrial sheffield because that's the place that they know everybody has to have a connection with what they're going to tell um and i'm not going to tell anybody else that they're wrong and what they're doing is you know is they shouldn't be doing that it's but but for me i just need to know where my own integrity and truth and what i connect with is so that i can tell from a place of of rootedness and connection and have something important to pass on And since her own mentorship was so formative, I wanted to know what Amy thought were the key elements of a worthwhile mentorship. If she was to design an apprenticeship, what would it look like? I'm not sure that I would design one for anybody else. (laughs) I think they should design it for themselves. Um, I mean, my mentorship was, um, it was about friendship. It was about connecting with a very old tradition. But at the, when, when I studied with Duncan and when I was with Duncan, it was about two people. I was, I mean, I fell in love with him as a person, not in a romantic way, but just in a, uh, my mum called him my third granddad once and he was absolutely delighted with that and he would introduce himself that way. And we had kind of, a combination of a granddad and a granddaughter relationship and a teacher and a pupil. And um, and then that would sometimes turn on its head when, you know, kind of I could be really cheeky and I would sort of almost be like, you know, carrier and carer of a geriatric old person would treat him that way and tease him about it. And, and you know, I mean, I, I couldn't really pay him in money, but I would turn up and clean up all of his cupboards. And I think, you know, that's sort of actually quite a traditional apprentice thing to do. Um, and I think, you know, if you look back... Um, you know, the, the apprentices are the ones who would be sweeping the floor and making the tea and everything else. They'd be doing that in exchange for their education. And so there was, there was definitely that side of it. And he, so it was about learning myself. It was about growing up. It was about being shown the possibilities. It was about being made um, to be uncomfortable quite a lot. I mean, he did an awful lot of throwing me in at the deep end and just seeing how I coped with it. Um, and never never in a disastrous way, but in a really uncomfortable way. So we would be at an event or something and he'd go, oh no, I was going to sing you a song and she's going to sing you this. And I go, you only taught me that yesterday and I don't really know it yet. Um, like he would, We would sing a song together and he would keep changing the key to see if I could catch up and I could keep up. Um, and he would decide, you know, he would 
announce what I was going to tell to people and just push me up there and kind of, you know, just I just have to get on and do it. Um, he did quite a lot of of, uh, of telling me things while we were doing other things. So he also taught me to drive and we had, he told me a lot of stories while we were driving. And that's quite, quite tricky to try and engage with a story while you're learning to drive. Um, and it was never kind of, I never had set lessons or anything, but that he would teach by example and, and by rumination. And um, there would always be something really important in what he'd said, but it might take me several years to work out what it was. Um, and there was a huge amount to do with the fire. I mean, the fire is so central to traveller traditions, but I mean, um, but particularly to him and that connection with storytelling and fire and I mean you were sort of talking about Greek stories and again I mean I think Greek stories are really interesting because I think they've permeated western culture so much I mean obviously the Greeks and the Romans invaded most of um of Europe and they brought their stories with them and it's but they're so interwoven in all the layers of our culture and history and references and stereotype and metaphor and archetype um that I mean, I feel that we have a real kind of affinity with those and a real place in telling those. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's um, uh, I would feel cultural appropriation is one of those big things that that resonates a lot and gets talked about a lot. I don't feel like I'm culturally appropriating if I tell a Greek story because a I feel like kind of it was shoved down our throats at one point, maybe not by the Greeks but by the Romans. Um, so <laughs> they kind of seeded them over here, but it's become so much part of our our culture that we can't cut cut that bit out of ourselves um and one of the stories that kind of keeps coming at me at the moment from all directions is the story of Prometheus and, and take, taking the fire and that story is about him taking the fire but it's not about taking the fire particularly for for cooking and that side of things it's the it's the fire of the gods and it's that moment you know where he gives us that puts a fire in our belly that gives that spark of creativity and life and thought and questioning and um, just that fire that really kind of elevates us into being thinking beings. And putting that together with the, the, the traveller fire, which is the source of all warmth or cooking or light, but it's also a call to everybody that's around, you know, kind of where there's a light there's humanity where there's a light it's it, um it holds back all of the creatures of the dangerous things of the nighttime whether that's wild animals or whether it's ghosts but you kind of need to feed a fire as well and you feed a fire wood but you also need to feed it with stories and with songs as soon as you get people sat around a fire then they start to talk and they start to share something of themselves kind of in exchange for that original bit of fire that they got given and and that community that you get around a fire and the stories that grow up around a fire are so incredibly important and that's kind of at the heart of what of what Duncan was really all about and he he knew everything that there was to know about building a fire um I mean <laughs> he could build a fire absolutely anywhere I mean I, I remember the story he was um he was with Helen camping in I think it was in Sweden it was Sweden or Norway and it was a really dry summer and there were big signs up everywhere again no no fires absolutely no fires and he was like well we're camping we've got to have a fire and uh, he got really grumpy about it and she says, if you can build a fire in the middle of the river, we can have a fire. That's the only safe place. And he says, right, fine. So he did. 
kind of belt up the rock, got the sticks on top, everybody's paddling in the water, fire in the middle of the river, did the cooking on there. Um, But he had that whole thing about himself, you know, kind of he could burn and rage really hot, you know, kind of you didn't want to, you didn't want to annoy him. He could hold a grudge. (laughs) But he also, wherever he went, he would just like attract people around him like moths people would just automatically gather around him. And wherever he was, people would just start telling stories. He would always be the first one to tell a story, but then he would stop, you know, he'd want, he'd want everybody else to be part of that. And the way that he could instantly create community and kinship was incredible. And, and particularly when you think about his background and, and actually how much hardship he'd been put through and how much prejudice he had had to put up against and, um, and some of the really terrible things that have been done to him and his family, that that joy in living and that open generosity is, is just incredible. You've been listening to Tales from the River Seven, a guest episode of Lore and Legend with storyteller Amy Douglas. You can find out more about Amy's storytelling on her website at www.amydouglas.com Series 1 and 2 of her show Taking the Tradition On are available to watch and listen to on YouTube. Look for the link to the channel in the episode notes. The lore and legend theme music in this episode was performed by Robert Bentall with additional music from Sakilo Museum of Ancient Instruments. To find out more about episodes of Lore and Legend you can visit www lawandlegend.co.uk and check out our episode blog posts and if you like the show and you want to hear more please consider joining our family of patrons and supporting the podcast for details visit our website and click support us and you'll find all the details there that you need to do that so thanks once again for listening and stay safe out there story folk we'll be back soon with another guest episode this time with welsh storyteller tamar williams Thank you.